back to another episode of Anne Asks, a podcast where I, your host, Anne Lee, attempt to uncover genuine human stories by bringing on a variety of interesting guests and interviewing them. Today, the date of recording is July 14th, 2020, and I have a very special guest with me, um, Laura J. Michelle, uh, who is a professor of history at UC Irvine, and uh, the president of World History Association, if I'm correct. <laughs> Maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit, um, what you do and who you are. Sure. Um, so I am a historian at a university, which means that some of my work is teaching classes to undergrads and some of my work is teaching classes to grad students. And um, a lot of my work is administrative. I had no idea that I was going to get a PhD and study for eight years so that I could answer email for six hours a day. Um, but that's a big part of what anyone's job is in today's world. Um, I am a historian of South Africa. I'm interested in the first place in colonial interactions that took place in South Africa between people who came under the Dutch East India Company, but mostly weren't Dutch but Europeans and the indigenous populations of hunters and herders who lived in the Western Cape region. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing you said about me is that I'm currently president of the World History Association, which is a scholarly society that brings together university professors and high school teachers and students who are interested in world history. That's a great introduction. I personally, as you probably know, um, um, history is one of my great passions, so I'm honored to have you on this podcast. So thank you so much for um, spending your time talking. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and this is something I think is so awesome that um, certainly this technology was, like people were doing things like this before the global pandemic, but yeah. I think we're doing it a lot more now. And yeah connecting across borders and in ways we didn't before. So I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. Um, the spending a lot of time alone at home, it inspired me to, oh, I do have access to people um, across the world and even, you know, down the street that I can call. And yeah, it inspired me to start the podcast. So I first wanted to ask you, um, just generally about your career as a historian and professor, um, you already described your jobs and you, uh, what do you do on a daily basis other than answering emails? So my, in, in a broader picture, my work time is um, divided between research and writing. And as a university-based scholar, a lot of that research is published and printed. Um, that I'm reading journal articles, I'm reading books, I'm reading things that have been published even from the 18th century, right, and bound, and they're easier to get at. <clears throat> so on a daily basis, I spend an hour or two trying to do that, or writing about what I'm reading, and a couple of hours a day uh, preparing for class, um, writing lectures, and thinking about assignments and structures for students so that they can, I hope, get a taste of doing the kind of work that I get to do on a regular basis. Um, and then a couple more hours usually responding to students and responding to student work, um, which is a nicer way to say grading. <laughs> um, how does one become a historian? What is the process 
behind and the different career options that you are met with throughout the journey? So if you're thinking about a university professor, the baseline qualification is earning a PhD, um, which is five to seven or eight years of study after finishing an undergrad or bachelor's degree in the US system. Um, in the UK or the English system, uh, PhD is a much shorter endeavor. St uh, students, people doing it usually finish in three to four years. Um, so that's something to think about for um, career trajectories. And if you want, I can talk a little bit about why a US or a UK um, PhD takes different times and what's involved. Yes. Yeah, sure. um, but I think thinking about careers, starting with an end goal kind of puts the cart before the horse. And I think it's much more interesting to think about what you like to do day to day. I certainly didn't know when I was in high school and not in college that I thought I'd be a, that I'd be a professor or that that's what I wanted to do. I was interested in history in the abstract, just liked old stories from elementary school even just it was a form of storytelling for me and it was a way of reading and i just really like to read um but when i finished college um in the u.s system right so bachelor's degree um my first job was as a hotel clerk at a ski resort because i finished in december and it was it was something to do and it was fun and then i got a job as a um sort of guide and chaperone for high school students who are traveling in Europe, US students. And then I came home at the end of that summer, stayed with my parents for a little while and ended up getting a job in corporate public affairs, going through a really conventional job search of going to my campus career center and sending out applications and just landed at a place where they were looking for recent college graduates. So I had corporate experience, but it wasn't everything I wanted it to be. And I mean, really, I just like wanted to read books more. Um, so I ended up applying to graduate school and took a really meandering path from there into eventually a PhD program. Um, again, not thinking I'd end up as a professor, but just because I was really interested in the material I was looking at and there were questions. I had these really deep questions about how colonial societies understood race and racism and how South Africa got to be the way it was in the mid 90s when I first started engaging with it. And it took me on a journey and I ended up finishing a PhD and becoming a professor. When I thought when I started the PhD program, I'd probably drop out after a year or two. I was like, oh, I'll get bored with this. Like I've gotten bored with everything else and I'll do something else after. And that was 25 years ago, and I'm not bored yet. That's amazing. Um, you s said even when you were in, uh, an element elementary student, history was a form of storytelling, which I really relate to, because that's, I think, also why I was first interested in history. Uh, but do you remember uh, a specific moment or a specific time that you said, oh, that's like your first exposure to history? either as a concept or a passion, or even a potential um, life pursuit? As a concept, I think I was seven or eight, and um, I had the great good fortune 
of having a vagabond dad. Um, he worked for one company his whole career, but they moved him every two years. And when I was at the end of being six, we moved to from the United States to Belgium. And for a little kid, this was magical. There was a castle within driving distance, like this old falling down medieval ruin with a tower, like turrets, crenellations. My goodness, like every fairy tale happened in that castle. This is, and starting to have a sense that the people and the kids I was meeting had a past that was different from mine. Um, so I, I guess I had this sense of a very visible past that I certainly didn't have from being in the suburbs of Southern California, which are all really brand new. And then when we moved back to the U.S. two years later, and I started having more formal history in school, do Western Civ, and it's like, oh wait, that's familiar, I've been there. It wasn't something that was completely fictional or foreign. So I think that's how it happened. I was wondering, um, from your perspective, uh, what do you think is the importance or significance of historians or history teachers? Um, either in the past, now, or in the future? It's a big question, um, but... Yeah, no, it is a big question. And I think I'm going to leave aside the future part to start with. And this comes from having studied very particular kinds of African history in my education. I think his, historians are first storytellers, right? And every human culture tells stories about itself, tells stories about its origins. Um, parents usually, in most cases, tell their children stories about the family and their place in the world to help make sense of that. And historians do that, modern historians, in a structured way with rules about how to apply evidence um, and with a passion for asking new questions, not simply rehashing some, rehashing makes it sound small and that's not what I mean, but going over an individual's history, but asking questions that relate to our larger community. And in a moment like ours, um, where there is an unprecedented global pandemic, and I think in lots of moments of crisis, we're tempted to throw up our hands, this is the first th worst thing we've ever seen. And it usually isn't, if you really think with evidence. And now we're living through a time that's really the worst we have ever seen. It's the biggest, it is the most deadly, um, it's the most widespread. And I'd go out on a limb and say it's perhaps the most controversial because it has hit so many countries and different countries have different forms of government. And so they've had different ways of approaching public health and managing how people interact with each other, how people move, how the economy moves. Um, so having a set of people who have a skill set, right, who are used to working with contradictory and uneven and incomplete evidence, who are used to thinking with big piles of evidence and trying to synthesize it and make sense of it is really helpful. 
Uh, you said something really interesting about um, when we examined the evidence of history, uh, we realized that it's not really um, unprecedented. It's been seen before in the patterns of the past. Uh, but can, can we really predict the future with what happened in the past? Can does basically, does history re repeat itself? I don't think history does repeat itself. Um, but I do think that we learn lessons from the past, um, right? And there's, I'm embarrassed to not remember the, the source for the quotation that those who don't learn history are condemned to repeat it, um, right? Which is not a presumption that history automatically repeats itself, but that if we don't learn lessons and for me, I think in the United States in the current moment, one of the lessons we really need to learn is the consequences of exclusion. And that when one group of people tries to exclude another on any basis, the result's never good. And we can look back historically and see that it's not good. Um, so does that mean that people won't keep prejudices of one form or another? No. I think it's ingrained in human nature. I mean, it's a very cynical look, but I, I don't think just learning history is gonna help that. But for people who are willing to look at evidence and try and imagine different outcomes, history has the possibility for giving us some lessons. Also, speaking of the current climate and um, everything that's going on, especially in the US, what, what do you think some of the main concerns or interests of history, historians or even teachers are right now? At least for you. <laughs> yeah, um, inclusion, right? But I think Black Lives Matter has hit a button, a, you know, a popular zeitgeist button in the US in ways that previous generations of similar messages haven't hit home with as deep resonance or um, with the same kind of emotional impact um, among the mostly white political policymakers um, and amongst a really diverse American public. I think people who aren't white are finding louder voices and many people who are white are for the first time understanding what it has meant to be ignorant of the day-to-day -day conditions of people who aren't like themselves. And I'm on a lot of social media or part of a lot of social media groups, Facebook groups, Twitter groups, Slack channels, um, different ways of communicating with teachers, college teachers, high school teachers, elementary school teachers, and I think partly it's being, I mean, it's history teachers or social studies teachers. I'm not talking to a lot of math or science teachers, um, but everyone is now paying more attention than they ever were to how do we recast this lesson to make it more inclusive? How do we ask a different question that doesn't presume that one group becomes dominant or that doesn't project the presumptions of a dominant group, just because this group has the power doesn't mean it has all the answers. And that hasn't been 
central to every teaching conversation I've been involved in until this June. Um, speaking of teaching, what um, I've had plenty of student perspectives on what it was like to teach during COVID-19, but what is it like from a teacher's perspective? It's mostly sad. Um, I stay as a teacher because I really like the human interaction. I like getting to know the students. Um, I feel really lucky to have a job at a big university with resources that still lets me have classes, not all of them, some of my classes have hundreds of students, but every year I have two or three classes that have 20 or 30 or fewer students, so I get to know them and I understand what their interests are. Um, we have conversations, I learn things from them. You just can't interact one-on-one -on -one in a seminar on Zoom with 20 people. The casual interactions go away. The, the funny ticks, the, the, the community jokes, they don't happen when all you see is like this much of somebody's face. Yeah, I'm actually taking a summer course right now online and I, I've noticed it's really difficult to have those um, discussions that kind of pop up without expecting, without the teacher initiating. And I really miss that yeah. being in classes. Yeah. Um, to go. Well, and I think I'm going to yeah, sure. dive in. Like the students don't interact with each other. Right? Stuff that happens in a class happens a lot because students act, ask each other questions in class or they talk outside of class and that changes. And when there's no student-student student dynamic without the teacher, it's not, it's not nearly as engaging. Yes, um, I wanted to ask you a little more specifically about your research in uh, colonial South, South Africa. And, uh, well, first of all, how did you come to discover that area of study or become interested in it? When I was an undergraduate, I was really interested in um, mostly 18th century um, European social history. So it was a lot about the history of people from below, ordinary people in the 1970s and into the 1980s. There was a big movement to try and understand European peasants on their own terms and not through the lens of the elites. And I found that as a college student really invigorating, which was really interesting to that it was possible to recover life stories of people who were ordinary, not famous, not royal, not rich, um, through unusual sources, because most of these people didn't write in their own sources. And then because of my work experience in the politics of the late 1980s, which anti-apartheid politics around the world about South Africa, I got more and more interested in South Africa and ended up with an opportunity to travel there. And the place blew me away, it just captivated me. And there was so much diversity. As a white American in South Africa in 1991, I had all kinds of opportunities. Um, I could talk to white people and they were interested and engaged and sanctions were just starting to fall apart, to fall away. So there hadn't been a lot of international visitors before. 
I could go to black communities and talk with black folk in South Africa in ways that white South Africans couldn't. Um, people would be very suspicious of me until I said that I was from the US and had come to learn about their culture. And, oh my goodness, we didn't think a white person would be interested in us. And actually there were plenty of white South Africans who were also interested, but there was, in the experience I had as a student at that point, there was a lot more tension there and I felt like it was easier as a foreigner to move through that. Um, and I found once I had like a couple of years and doing other things and then I was in a graduate, finally in a PhD program, and it seemed like it was kind of possible to do some of this work that had interested me as an undergraduate on sort of base level demographic social history, but on the peasantry of South Africa, which for the kinds of documents that were available to me ended up being the colonial peasantry, the peasantry of white people and not the peasantry of black folk. Um, I got really interested in the record keeping of the Dutch East India Company, which is voluminous and tells lots of stories about settlers, about their land claims, about the slaves and the indigenous indentured people who came to work for them. There were lots of layers and prisms to work through. I'm trying to understand, for example, what it means to say I could understand anything about the lived experience of a Khoisan, an indigenous South African individual who didn't leave her own record. I know that she existed. I know she was a mother. I know how many children she had. But I'm seeing this through the record keeping of a colonial company, right? So those layers are deep and it was a perplexing puzzle that still interests me to try and understand. Yeah, I think the whole record keeping is very important, very um, interesting in history, especially because um, most of the time, at least in the past, uh, a lot of the records were kept by and about uh, the dominant, usually white male figures. Um, I was watching a show um, called Medici, and they were talking about the Medici family. And uh, the show creators were talking about how there are so many records about Lorenzo de' Medici and all the males in the family, but um, the females, uh, they have barely any information about them. So when they were creating the characters, they almost had to imagine what their role would have been like and what they would have given and contributed to the family. Yeah, and that's, I think, historical fiction is fantastic for that because as a professional scholarly historian and as a teacher, I need to stick to what the evidence can tell us. But sometimes speculating about what the evidence doesn't tell us is so tantalizing. It makes it, makes it human for us in ways that just the facts don't always. Um, also, I'm very interested in the research process that you talked about, like you even traveled there. Um, I was wondering, how did you find your sources and go through that information? Uh, I bet it, it must have been like a lot to unpack. Um, well, the way of finding sources for most historians comes from reading other historians. 
And so as I started as a graduate student, I was very carefully reading books that I admired and looking in their footnotes and seeing, okay, this is, they're using this set of shipping records from the Dutch East India Company, or this set of Council of Policy meeting minutes, right? This set of correspondence. Um, I got really fascinated by references to the census, and the Dutch East India Company kept a really detailed census of the settlers. Um, when we think about the 18th century, right, and South Africa was a slave society and had chattel slaves like the United States did, um, the settlers weren't actually free. Um, certainly they were freer than the slaves, but they had obligations to the Dutch East India Company. There were limitations on what they could do on where they could move around. Our 21st century sense of citizenship and freedom just didn't apply. Right, so the company wrote down the names of every settler man and his wife. And this is how they, like every household was named by a man. His wife's name was there. Very interesting coming from the US where historic and out of an English tradition where when women get married, their surname becomes their husband's surname. In the Dutch tradition, women kept their family surnames. So already I had records of two family people. They would count the number of children. Right? So I didn't know the children's names, but then I could go to birth records and say, okay, in this year, this family had this many children, this many boys, this many girls. Here's the birth records that show me like at that point, how many kids would have been alive. Um, so a lot of that work other genealogists had done, so I didn't go to the birth records for every family, but I was able to reconstruct that and then reconstruct um, the numbers of slaves that were in those households. And then from sales records, put together the names in some households of the slaves and indentured servants who were there. So it's this, when it took years, three years really of working between records in South Africa and records kept in the Netherlands um, and keeping spreadsheets. I had these fantastic old Lotus 123 software that died before you were born. Um, the predecessor of Excel, um, these spreadsheets and just tracking people's names. Again, it was like puzzle solving. Yeah, that sounds just like what a detective would do. That's so cool. Um, how did you find those uh, birth records? That was it like available in your library or? It's there. Um, yeah, they were at that point available um, you know, through church records in South Africa. Wow. Um, a lot of these kinds of records are available online now. Not all of them, but a lot. But when I was doing this work, starting in 1995, 1996, was all just in these big, thick 18th century books, bound in beautiful leather, paper falling apart. Um, the paper's old and kind of moldy. There's crust and grub on him. And I would often sit to read with my hand like this against my face. This podcast you can't see, but my hand up against my cheek. Yeah. And then I would take my right hand because right handed and I would turn the page and the handwriting was awkward and cramped and hard to read. So I pulled up my head, putting my hand on my cheek and read for another 10 minutes and then reach out and turn the page. 
and I got the worst kind of like pimply acne down the side of my face because he was putting this 200-year-old mold on my face. Uh. <laughs> right? And I think it's so much harder for graduate students coming up now because there is much more pressure for them to get done quickly. Right? And the, I had this luxury of sitting for three or four months at a time, going to the archives every day and just reading these old ledgers, taking my notes and trying to make sense of a world that has since disappeared. I actually, one of the first times I actually really fell in love with, with history is when um, I was in a Renaissance course, actually, uh, it was at Stanford, but it was by Johns Hopkins. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I was looking, we were given access to the Stanford Green Library and there were um, there was a rare book section with all the um, Renaissance tomes and all of the elaborate books, and we, we weren't allowed to you know go through them as um, you did, but just looking at them and seeing uh, just even the notes that people wrote, it, it makes history feel so alive and uh, tangible. Is it's, it's it does feeling yeah. I was wondering, when you look through all the records, what did the records um, tell you about life at, during that time? Or what, how, how did the records prove helpful to your research? Well, it helped me construct households. Right? I started getting a sense of how many people were living on, a, on individual farms. Um, I had a sense of the material life and culture of these households, which in some cases were pretty fabulous. I mean, one, like frontier household, so it was eight days travel by ox wagon away from Cape Town, which was a small port city at that point. You know, some stone buildings, but not a lavish place itself. Right, and so you get in an ox wagon, you travel for eight days, and you go out to a farm um, where, again, there weren't a lot of buildings. There, in some cases, wasn't a lot of furniture. Some of the other European travelers who'd been there talked about how rudimentary these households were, and that they weren't really like Europeans because they didn't have proper chairs and tables and sat on the floor. Um, but some households were accumulating and making tables and chairs, and one household had 13 dozen porcelain plates. I mean, and then I know that the parents of the wife of that household, um, when her father died, there was a household inventory, and they had a few pots and pans, and nothing, you know, nothing more that was inventoried in that household. And so, by the time that their daughter was herself a grandmother, she lived in a household that had furniture and 13 dozen plates. I mean, who needs 13 dozen plates? Um, so clearly something was going on. They had a lot of people around. Um, I still don't know more than that, but those are the sorts of inferences that I could see over generations that some families were accumulating wealth and getting richer, um, that other families didn't that it wasn't happening for everyone that by the time this family that had 13 dozen plates 
Um, some of their neighbors still had very few European material possessions. Um, one of the things that's sparking the research I'm doing now is that in the inventories of these households, there's hardly ever discussion of African material culture. And yet they had African people working for them. And when you know there must have been other things that the officials who were in charge of making the inventories didn't see those as valuable, so they didn't write them down. Because there was no, no death tax, no dividing it up among the heirs. Yeah, back to the record keeping thing about um, who's in charge and what they get to write about. But that's, yeah. that's so cool how you can tell all of that just from the records because it, it seems like it, it really makes it feel like those people in the past were real people and it, it makes you realize that they had, you know, their own interesting lives. Yeah, and their own struggles, right? Yeah. Somebody, somebody had to figure out what they were going to eat and somebody had to cook it and someone had to serve it. Um, so, yeah. Um, but also I think South African history specifically, um, is very interesting because of the different ethnic and cultural diversity, especially during the colonial era when there was so much interaction between even Europe and Asia and, um, just colonialism itself, the conflicts and cultural blending that are involved. Um, I was wondering what what can you learn from that uh, time period and place um, and maybe apply it or just uh, what what can you learn from there and talk about it now? Well, I think to me that that diversity is part of what drew me to stay engaged with South Africa, that it's not a single colonial history. And as a US citizen, I'm embarrassed to say that it wasn't until I was in my 30s and in a PhD program that I really started to understand some of that about the US, right? I had, I had been interested in history for a long time but hadn't formally studied a lot of US history. And I thought of it very much as a sort of 13 British colonies and people moved west. And that's an appalling position to take for someone who spent most of my childhood in California, which if we're gonna start its colonial history, starts with the Spanish and then became Mexican and only later became an Anglo colony of the new United States. And that history wasn't something that I was that was really brought to my attention or that I paid attention to in spite of living in Southern California with mission style buildings all around. Yeah, I knew it, but I still thought of US history as a very Anglo thing. And that's that's a disgrace and a tragedy. It's a little tragedy, but now that I'm a teacher and an educator, I can try and shape that story differently. And it's one that I have seen playing out in South Africa, um, which, you know, in 1991, when I first went, the general story of South Africa was very much one of Dutch dominant colonialism. And these other stories weren't brought to the surface. And 
much as a non-citizen, but very interested observer, how does a country going through a dramatic transformation like South Africa did in 1994 um, and start to revise its own history curriculum? What do the new history books look like for school? Who gets to tell those stories? And you're not gonna not say that a guy called Jan van Riebeck was tasked by the Dutch East India Company with starting a colonial outpost at the Cape, but it didn't become an only Dutch place without the Portuguese, without the French, without the Germans, without Scandinavians, and really importantly, without the input of indigenous hunters, the um, sand people, the indigenous herding peoples, koi koi, um, indigenous farming peoples, Kosa um, and Swana, who were the first peoples that, um, the first farming peoples that settlers or colonists interacted with. And then the influx of Asians, particularly Asian artisans who came to the Cape as slaves, um, South African cuisine, South African music, the Afrikaans language, all of that would be dramatically different without Asian input. And that's a story. I mean, that's a totally fantastic world history story. That sounds very similar to what America is today. Just this hub of so many different cultures that makes it um, unique. And without yeah. one of the people, any people in it, it, it would it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same. But it's still too easy in the United States to tell a story that is about. 13 British colonies and Anglo domination and the overbearing significance of white people. And it's a more interesting story if everyone else is part of the story. Um, also, one thing I wanted to ask you is um, next year I'm taking a high school course, uh, AP Research. And um, I was wondering if you had any advice for high schoolers approaching this um, kind of almost like a college course where you uh, do your own research and you you know do firsthand research, uh, some people might you know conduct studies even. How to approach it? What sort of methods there are? And advice on formulating ideas or even writing? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> it's a huge question, and. I mean, I think the first thing, which you seem to have a handle on, Rin, is to pursue what interests you and not do something because you think other people will appreciate it or that's the topic a college admissions committee is looking for. Um, you, know, you, you can only find your own way in life by pursuing the things that interest you and following your own passions. Um, asking questions and talking to people. I think, again, advice that I give a lot that I was given and never took as um, a young person, to reach out and talk to people who are a little bit further along than you are in the path, to talking to people who are much further along in a path you think is potentially interesting. Um, as you're doing the research, don't be afraid to reach out to people who have more expertise than you and ask for advice, um, suggestions. 
if you're pursuing a history topic, I don't know if you would or wouldn't, but interested. Um, yeah, I am. Some, <laughs> you'll read some secondary sources, um, hopefully by people who are still alive and working. And in the, the world of email, um, a serious question to the author of a book is one of the greatest compliments you can pay that author. And say, I, I really appreciated what you did here. Um, can you tell me more about how you found out this piece? Can you give me, when you asked earlier about how I found my way into certain documents, um, it was talking to professors um, at universities all around the world who had worked in those records to ask them before I went, well, you know, what's your advice? And how much time do you think it will take me to work through one volume? Um, I mean, no one can exactly answer that question. Um, but a lot of what I found, I found because people pointed me to it, not because I, you know, sometimes I got lucky breaks, but it's that conversation and the forming of community, I think that really makes for a successful research enterprise. That and good notes. Thank you. Last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, well, mainly because this is the way I um, got to know you, is World History Association. And I wanted to, well, um, maybe you could introduce it and talk about your role as a president and what the vision or purpose of it is and some of the activities that they do there? Sure, so the World History Association is like many other scholarly societies that exist in most countries that I know of where there's scholarship and scholars. Um, scholarly societies started in a time before internet um, because it's important for researchers to get together and talk to each other face to face, not just to exchange correspondence, whether that's by old handwritten letters or emails. Um, and so the World History Association um, started that way in the late 1980s, bringing together people who were passionate about what was then a new field, to take seriously the history of the world, not as a universal, like everyone goes through the same phases of history and we're all gonna arrive at the same place and not a history of multiculturalism, like I've been talking about diversity and it's so great and it is, but you know, world history sees itself doing something different, trying to ask questions that are common to all humanity. Big questions like migration and demographic shifts, um, climate in the environment, those are questions that you can really only ask and answer on a very big scale. So the World History Association is a space where people who have those interests can come together. We have a conference every year, except in 2020 when there's a pandemic, um, that brings together around 300 people and they present papers. So they're talking to each other about their work. Um, there's lots of downtime in between the panel sessions so people can talk to each other, renew acquaintances, make friends, some, for me, going to the World History Association meeting every June is an exciting opportunity because I know I'm going to learn something. I know I'm going to get some really good teaching advice. Um, and I'm going to get to see friends that I wouldn't see otherwise. 
because we all live far away and we converge at this place. I was actually curious about the conferences. Um, what, what kind of things do you discuss and what kind of ideas come up during those conferences? All kinds of things. I mean, some of the presenters are very senior scholars who have written textbooks and they talk about how I teach world history. Um, there are presentations by high, sometimes high school students, usually a couple of college students, many graduate students, people working on their PhDs, who are talking about their research. Um, as an emerging scholar myself, you know, I can still clearly remember the first conference I went to where I started to present to my peers the details of these families I had reconstructed. And so you get sometimes stories like that, very detailed, sometimes much bigger. And it's, it's a fair question to say, like, what are the papers like? But I feel like it's way too diverse to give a proper answer. And also you mentioned the importance of world history in like a global sense and the broad questions that um, address all what the commonality of humans. And I think what's so great about the World History Association specifically is the different international voices that are contribute to it, especially something that comes to mind is this spring bulletin issue of 2020 yeah. um, that I contributed a small part in. And I saw that there are people from uh, Nigeria, Greece, Brazil, uh, Korea, which is me, and the UK, and so many different places. Uh, that, that's so, how do you have that kind of reach? And um, how do you get so many voices to um, talk about something together? Um, how do you have that reach? The answer is the internet. Um, and the nature of higher education and scholarship today, it's increasingly global. Um, the classes that I teach have, depending on the class, from 20 to maybe even 60% international students. Some of them are students who come to California for their, their college careers. They're gonna be there for them and go home. Others are exchange students who are there for a semester or a year. Um, this is also true of faculty, right? And that we, many of us seek opportunities to go to other countries to teach. We look for opportunities to interact with people from other places because they give us fresh perspectives. And when thinking about the scholarship that I do, um, the other people who are engaged, you know, in the detailed level of 18th century South Africa, of whom there aren't very many, we're located in South Africa, in Europe, in the UK, in Australia, um, in Japan, and a few in the US. And you know, I think no matter what, where your narrowest field of specialty is, if you're really engaged with cutting edge of that scholarship, it's going to be interactions with people around the world. And you're going to go back to what I had said before, as a researcher, you read something that you really admire or that sparks questions, 
and you write to the author and say, wow, I really love this paper and I want to know more about this piece of it or I'd like to share, I thought you might be interested in this other thing I read because they go together. Um, and so it's those networks amplified through a scholarly society like the WHA. I was wondering um, when you, from your experience of interacting with su such a diverse community in the scholarly community, do you feel like the different voices and perspectives that you hear are very different or are they more similar? Because when you th think about world history, it is also talking about how humans are similar, but also how they're different in their respective cultures and societies. Oh, I think um, having international diversity gives us really, really different perspectives. Um, what world history means for teaching, either for college students or for high school students, is a radically different enterprise in Western Europe than it is in the US, than it is in Korea. I'm picking those places because I have very specific scholars and contacts in mind there. And even in Western Europe, there are huge differences between these practices in Germany and in France. And there's a lot more enthusiasm in Germany and a particular kind of skepticism and critique that comes from France that's really, really useful for everyone to hear. It's really interesting how the topic of COVID can reach different fields because I think on the news, we especially hear the voices of um, scientists or health professionals. But I was wondering what can historians add to this conversation? and also an extending question is, can history be practical and can it, can it be accessible to use in world crises or situations like this? I think history has to be usable. Um, there are people who try and write it in ways that it isn't, but for me, it serves no purpose to go look for new information or to try and teach unless it is relevant to making sense of the world around us. And my friend and colleague, Trevor Getz, who teaches at San Francisco State and is also a WHA member, um, has made a part of his career's mission to talk about usable world history. And in that context, I do think historians have something to add to public health experts and scientists and policy planners because Historians can be focused on human experience in ways that data doesn't always give us or disease vectors doesn't always give us and to be reminded that there's human beings at, whose lives are at stake and that there are multiple processes and I don't want to sound like I'm a disciplinary chauvinist. We're the only people who can do this because my other people other practitioners who practice their disciplines well do it too. But I think for a historian, it's explicitly part of our training to say, what, is, what do the epidemiologists say? And what's the political perspective? And what's our economic perspective here? And where are the, the cultural roots and how are they coming either to serve a purpose or coming into conflict with each other? And I think it's our job as historians 
you're a historian, like anyone who is interested in history and who is asking questions is, to use the skills that we might have developed to understand peasants in the 18th century, to understand the world that's unfolding in unprecedented ways around us right now. The last thing I have before uh, you go is the segment that I do with all my guests called A Few of My Favorite Things. Okay, the first one is kind of easy. What, what is your favorite place to travel, especially as a historian exploring the world? Um, one favorite place is super hard to pick. Yeah. My current favorite place would be Tunisia. Um, and this is particularly as a historian because so many cultures passed through there and the history is so very visible um, from ancient Phoenicia to the Carthaginians, to the Romans, um, you know, through the Middle Ages, the presence of Christians, Muslims, and Jews living together and interacting, um, period of colonization, the period of piracy, and you know, Tunisia was the start of the Arab Spring in this century. So it's it's small, it's easy to get around, and you can go through millennia. When you do travel, are there different specific things you look for um, that you find that you are more interested in because you um, work in history? Well, I think I'm interested in a place's history always. Um, you know, that's an occupational hazard. Um, but I think I'm, I'm an, uh, an atypical traveler. Um, I am likely to skip going to see some important monument and instead sit in a coffee shop and talk to people. Mm. Um, I always say when I travel that I love, um, experiencing the people there. And I think talking to people is, if you have the courage to go out to them, which I sometimes do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning as I get older. It gets easier. At least it's easier for me as I get older. And I just keep reminding myself, it's unlikely I will ever be back here again. I can't manage <laughs> myself a person. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, the second one is if there are any assumptions about um, people in your field or just scholars in general that you love to dis, uh, disprove or prove wrong. I think it's way too easy to think that history teachers are uptight and nerdy, very dusty old people. And I'd like to think that some of us are fun and dynamic and get out into the world. Yeah. Okay, last one is, are there any, um, is there any material, whether it's a book, a movie, show, article, etc., cetera, uh, that uh, you would recommend to someone, especially um, a young person like me, um, who's interested in history and would like to, you know, dive into something like that? Thank you, Madison. Okay, two answers to that question. Okay. And one, you already mentioned the Medicis, but I don't know if you've seen um, the Marco Polo miniseries. Oh, um, I haven't. Which is totally fun. I mean, I, it's not, 
again, Medici is not completely historically accurate, but uh, it's a fantastic yeah. evocation of time and place. And he troops up and down the Silk Road and does things that Marco Polo didn't really do, but it's a great story. And then a little more seriously, there is a podcast called Slow Burn um, from Slate Magazine in the US. And the first two seasons are, um, the first season is about the Watergate scandal in the US. And the second is about the Clinton scandal and um, the star investigation and his alleged, clearly crude affair with Monica Lewinsky. Um, and so they tell you something about contemporary US history. But the reason I really like them, the host is a guy called um, Leon Nafak. And he asks history professor kind of questions about popular events, about current events. He's really into the sources. And I just, I, as I listened to those two seasons last year, the year before, how can I put these into an early modern world history class? Because they're fantastic ways of thinking with evidence and managing conflicting material but done in a way, as we were talking before, it's completely usable, it's accessible to anyone. You don't have to already know very much to make sense, to have this story make sense. And he's kind of seductive in the way he's asking these questions, right? You don't think about it, and then suddenly you realize you've been pulled into this deep evidence and source rabbit hole. Um, well, I would encourage people to follow the WHA on Twitter, which is at WHA Tweets, um, because we're doing lots of new, different things this summer, and there's activities and events online to sign up for. Um, so that's my plug. Feel free to contact us and send us any feedback, questions, or requests on Instagram at Podcast and Twitter at Anne underscore Avenue, and leave a comment on any platform that included the comment space. And I think that's it for today. I hope you'll stay safe and um, yeah, in contact. Yeah, stay home in my pretty yard. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.